This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. This morning we'll be in chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20 as we continue our study through this book. Paul is continuing to admonish and encourage this church not to compromise the message of salvation by grace alone. The way they would compromise it is by not ignoring that, but by adding to it. Teachers had arrived in these churches that were telling them, it is grace, yes, amen, but you must add the works of the law to grace. Now, by doing so, by adding to grace, you negate grace. So Paul is encouraging the church then and now not to compromise the message of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Now, this passage we're about to read is very personal. Paul opens up his heart to to expose the nerves that are are feeling the pain of this church's rejection of the gospel. And all of this is to encourage them to return to the true message of salvation by grace. I'm going to pick up reading at verse 8 and we'll read through verse 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. In the year 1972, a young businessman in Egypt by the name of Farahat lost something that caused him a great deal of anxiety. He was very wealthy, and he had purchased a wristwatch, a single wristwatch, for $11,000. Yes, the price of a small car he was wearing on his wrist And he lost it. He looked everywhere but had not found it and was ready to give it up for good. When he received word that a garbage man 
was at the front gate of his mansion wanting to see him. A garbage man dressed in rags, reeking of the smell of filth. But sure enough, Farahat brought him in and the garbage man said, I believe this belongs to you based on the inscription on the back of the watch. And he was handing Farahat the $11,000 wristwatch. Farahat asked him, why didn't you just keep it? You could have sold that watch and had more money than you will probably see in 10 years. The garbage man responded by saying, My Christ told me to be honest until death. Later, Farahat told a reporter, I didn't know Jesus at the time. But I told that garbage man that I saw Jesus in him. And I told him, because of what you have done and your great example, I will worship the Christ you are worshiping. But the story gets even better. Farahat studied his Bible and he grew in his faith until two years later, he actually visited the dump outside of Cairo where this garbage man lived. This is no small dump, by the way. Between fifteen to 30,000 people live at this dump, this garbage dump. There's no electricity, no running water, alcohol, drugs, gambling are pervasive. Men and women look through the garbage searching for food or something they can sell just to make ends meet. Farahat said he found himself reflecting on the words of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He remembered the words Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when he said, We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. And soon Farahat and his wife began ministering in that garbage dump community. Their ministry grew. Grew to the point where about 10,000 believers now meet regularly in a cave not far from that dump. Farahat pastors a church of 10,000 of the poorest. Of Cairo. In 2005, he hosted a day of prayer for Muslims. Seeking spiritual awakening through the Middle East, 20,000 Arab Christians gathered to pray, all because one garbage man chose to humbly return a watch that would have made him the richest man in town. The character of that garbage man made a difference. Character does that. And that garbage man was simply showing a character that had been shaped by the one whom he worshipped, Jesus. Character matters. Character is defined as the qualities, specifically the moral qualities, that make up an individual. Our character reveals what we value. Our character is a revelation of our morals. Therefore, a character can be described as good or bad, kind or mean, forgiving or gentle. But there can be no doubt that character, especially the character of those who claim to follow Jesus, matters. I was reminded of this this past week as I finished the recent book by Dr. Russell Moore. He's the senior editor at Christianity Today. The title of his book is called Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. Within the pages of that book, he echoes something that the church in America is very painfully aware of. Young people in their 20s are leaving the church in droves. 
Moore points out that research has revealed that it's not that those young adults are rejecting Jesus or rejecting the gospel. Most of them grew up in church. They believe. So they're not rejecting the faith. What they are rejecting is the church because they do not believe that the church actually believes what it says it believes. They hear sound doctrine, but they see something else. They hear sermons on love, but they see lives that are filled with anger. They hear sermons about living humbly, but they see leaders who pursue power at any cost. And they simply cannot live with that dissonance. Many things go into the formation of character. Personal temperament. Family and culture play a role. What is applauded or rejected by those we surround ourselves with will influence our character. But our character is ultimately shaped by what we value. What we worship shapes and defines our character. Because we will, in the end, become like that which we worship. That which we esteem is that which we will become. And even though Paul was absent from the churches in Galatia, he was aware of a change in their character, a not-so-good change that had coincided with their shift away from grace to works. As they changed their focus, their character began to change. When we lose sight of the grace of God, we are in danger of losing our way. Before I start at verse 8, I want to draw your attention to verse 19 because Paul says something almost as an aside here that is crucial for us if we think about what is the goal of our Christianity. Paul uses the imagery of a woman that is, is giving birth. My little children, he says, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. He says, as a missionary, I, I planted this church. I helped birth this church. And now, as you are tempted to leave the gospel, I feel the pains of birth again. He says, I'm in childbirth, though. Look at the final words of that verse. Until Christ is formed in you. There's the goal that Paul is working toward. Often we think, what is the goal of our faith? And we say, well, my goal is to get to heaven. You recognize that heaven is actually a secondary result of following Christ. The primary result is knowing God and being transformed by God. He says, I want Christ to be formed in you. In other words, I want you to be the living embodiment of Jesus. And he is speaking to the community. The you there is plural. He is saying, church, I want you to be Jesus us to the world. This is language Paul uses again in Corinthians. He says, church, guess what? You are the body of Christ. What the church does in the world is what Jesus is doing in the world. So I ask us today, if we, if we are the hands of Jesus, are we reaching out to the world or are we making a fist at the world? We are his mouth. Are we speaking life to the world around us or are we condemning them with death? 
Paul is saying here that our goal is to be like Jesus. The reason we worship is because He is worthy. But as we worship Him, we know Him and we are changed. Why? Because we become like that which we worship. We study the Word of God, not just for head knowledge, but for transformation. Knowledge without transformation leads to pride. And pride is like the Dead Sea. There's water flowing into it, but nothing going out, so it's dead. A church that only focuses upon knowledge about God, but not being transformed by God, will be a church that slowly dies. Knowledge of God brought about transformation of the believers in Galatia. Look at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. They were Gentiles. They had grown up in pagan worship. And he's saying that worshiping anything other than God is slavery. Sin enslaves. Habits that are not formed by God end up enslaving us. And he says, before you knew God, you were enslaved. But then verse 9 begins with a conjunction and an adverb that is crucial and filled with hope. But now, I was this, but now I am in Christ. I was sin a sinner, but now I am sanctified. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. It's very interesting language. It's the language of, of friendship. It's the language of, of election, of knowing God relationally. We're used to thinking in terms of knowing God and speaking of salvation. But when he says, or rather to be known by God, that was the language that Jews used of themselves to say, we are the people known by God. Now, God is omniscient. He knows all. So this is relational. The Jews would say, we are the people known by God. The Gentiles are not known by God. So when Paul applies this to the Gentile church in Galatia, he's saying that the old distinctions are gone, eradicated, torn down by the cross. And he says, now that you are a part of God's people, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Now, Paul's continuing a theme here. He started in verses 1 through 7. Verses four, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 mirror the exodus. People were enslaved. They were redeemed by God. They were adopted as sons of God. And the Spirit of God dwelled within them. He says that's exactly what happens at our salvation. We are slaves under guardians and managers until God redeems us. Once we are redeemed, in verse 6, we are adopted as sons. And then in verse 6 also, the Spirit of God has been sent into our hearts. So that just as God indwelt the tabernacle in the middle of the children of Israel, He indwells us. Now think back to your Old Testament history for a moment. When Israel was in the wilderness, they're living on manna. They're walking by faith. What did they start asking Moses to do? Take us back to Egypt. I'm tired of this manna bread. I'm sick and tired of this manna everywhere we turn. We were slaves in Egypt, but at least we knew what was going on. And here in verse 9, Paul says to the church, you're doing the exact same thing. 
If you choose to add works to salvation, you are enslaving yourself again, going back to a master that you can never satisfy. And the interesting thing is, is that Paul says you're already starting to do this. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He says you've already started following this calendar, not for the sake of remembering and pointing to Jesus. But you're doing these things in verse 10 for the point of salvation. That's why he says, I may have labored over you in vain. He says they're moving away from the goal. They're focusing on themselves and their own righteousness rather than grace. Our goal is to be like Jesus' church. We must never forget that goal. 1996, one of the worst um, disasters occurred on the surface of Mount Everest. I think since then, there's been one or two more that were more deadly, but at this time, a freak storm hit the slopes of Everest. Now, I am not a hiker. Um, you know, I, I'm, just, I'm just not. I don't make any apologies for that. But there are those that enjoy hiking, those that enjoy mountain climbing. And I say, God bless you. Enjoy. But to climb Everest and mountains like that, that's a whole nother ball game. 1996, John Krakauer was a member of that expedition that was trying to scale the summit of Everest. He wrote about it in his book, Into Thin Air. And he told about one member of this expedition by the name of Yusaka Namba. Yosaka was a 46-year-old lady from Japan, a FedEx employee who had a passion for climbing. She'd climbed already many of the seven largest mountains of the world with only Everest left to conquer. He said she was a real go-getter. She was totally focused on the top. She wanted to be not only the oldest woman to climb Everest, but the first of her native Japan to reach the top. Krakauer said she pushed extremely hard. She would even push her way past climbers in front of her to get to the top. And she made it. She made it to the summit of Everest. However, she, she died shortly after starting her descent. Krakauer said the problem was the tragic mistake she made. She ignored all the warnings that were being given because her goal was to get to the top. She had forgotten that a true mountain climber's goal is not to get to the top, but to get back to the bottom safely. That's the goal. Her goal was wrong. And it cost her her life. We need to progress toward the goal of being like Jesus. When we forget that goal, Passion and vitality will drain from us like water going out of a sink. So how do we do this? How do we avoid the error that the Galatians had of worshiping the wrong thing or adding to the gospel so that our character changes in a not so good way? Well, in chapter 5, we're going to see that it's the Spirit of God within us that brings about these changes. But there are things, tools the Spirit uses that Paul highlights or alludes to in verses 12 through 20. One crucial thing for having good character and keeping focused on the gospel of grace is having the right example. He says, I entreat you in verse 12, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. The phrasing there seems odd. Become as I am, for I become as you are. 
Paul 1 is expressing the philosophy of the day that friends learn from one another and encourage one another. But he's also setting the pattern for something Paul does frequently in his letters, specifically in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, where he says, follow me as I follow Christ. He is laying his life out as an example of what it means to follow Christ. We need such examples. Such examples that, that young people can begin getting in their mind. This is what it looks like. Because we all know, how do, how do we be like Jesus? Well, look to Jesus, we say. And that's true. But Jesus gives us flesh and blood examples. We do this in all of life. We look for examples to follow. If you're watching a cooking show on TV, and say it's the Pioneer, Pioneer Woman, I do not cook, I do not watch her. Although I do do a mean scrambled egg. What are you watching her for? To learn by her example. To follow that. In sports, we look to those to have an example how to play. I still remember it very vividly it, it back, way back in the day when I was playing for the mighty McMinn County Cherokees. I had two players that I tried in my mind to imitate. One of them you've heard of. The other, you are a true college basketball fan if you remember the name of Dallas Comages from the DePaul University. He was a 6'9", 4-year. I cannot imitate 6'9", but I love the way he played. The other was Patrick Ewing. In my mind, I would see his turnaround jumps. Now, he's 7'1". You can't coach 7'1". But in my mind, I would see him doing this move, and that's what I would imitate there in the driveway at 6 at night, there in the driveway at 10 at night, bouncing the basketball, driving my neighbors crazy. What am I doing? I'm practicing a turnaround jump shot that I'm seeing. Spiritual walk is like that also. God wants us to have examples to follow, to imitate. That's why it's so crucial that we have times where we come together across generational boundaries and we get to know each other and open up our lives to one another, not just coming and sitting as isolated individuals in a worship service, but getting involved in classes, getting involved in projects and sharing life together. Now, Satan works. He says, well, who are you? Who are you to have somebody to say, hey, follow my example? You're just like the rest of us, saved by grace. But keep in mind that Satan wants to prevent you from impacting others. Paul doesn't say this in arrogance. It's out of love. So he says, I want you to follow the right example. The next thing he says is to have real compassion. Look at verses 13 through 15. Paul ends in verse 12 by saying, you did me no wrong. In other words, you've not wronged me. I'm not writing this, he says, out of a sense of personal offense. He says, in fact, in verses 13 through 15, he goes back to what led him to the church at Galatia anyway. He says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. It's interesting. We don't know what the ailment is. But apparently it caused Paul to stop at these churches and to have a ministry there. Now, some people think it was his eyesight because at the end of this letter, he talks about what large letters he writes. He even mentions here, verse 15, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So some people think that Paul had bad eyesight. It's possible. But that phrase there in verse 15 where he says you would have gouged out your eyes could also be a statement like, you know, if I could, I'd give you my left arm. If I could. It's a way of saying I would have given anything to you. But the point is, the body ailment is not the emphasis, but it's verse 14. He says, my condition was a trial to you. In other words, it was a hardship. 
but you didn't scorn or despise me. You received me as an angel of God, even as you would receive Jesus himself. You see, in Paul's time, if a person had a disability, they would be scorned as one rejected by God, cursed. And Paul's saying, you were compassionate to me. You didn't receive me like that. Which highlights the question in verse 15. What then's become of your blessedness? Why have you changed? You were compassionate toward me. You showed me grace. But now that has come to an end. You see, one of the signs of Christ-like character is Christ-like compassion. Receiving others with compassion. A sign that we have received grace is that we give grace to others. A sign that we have received the compassion of God is that we extend compassion and love to others. And we do that because we know what it is to be saved. That's why we must always remember that God redeemed us from our slavery to sin. I have no doubt that all of you in here are familiar, as most of the world is, with the song Amazing Grace. Written by John Newton. Many are familiar with Newton's testimony. He was a former slave trader. He was a drunk. He was not somebody that, well, let's just say, if he had walked into the room, you would have started looking for a way out. He was thrown into the brig of the ship when he threw the crew's grog overboard in a fit of anger. And there as he was in the fetters in the belly of a slave ship, he was a slave trader. He remembered the gospel that his mother had taught him. And his life was radically changed. But he never forgot from whence he had came. In fact, as he began to minister throughout the remainder of his life, he had a wood etching placed above his mantelpiece that said, quoting Deuteronomy 15, 15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. You shall remember you were a slave, but you were set free. We must never forget that we have been saved by the grace of God. And as we remember the grace of God in our lives, we should then extend that grace to others, even those who are spiritually blind that do not know the truth, because we were once spiritually blind. We should have compassion on those who are spiritually deaf, because we at once time we're deaf to the gospel we should even have compassion on our enemies why because we were once enemies of God until he had compassion on us and to do this we need the help of one another we not only need examples to follow we not only need to look at compassion as the God in our lives but we need real community we don't do this alone we have a tendency to drift, so we need those around us that will help to, to focus us in the wind of the Spirit. Paul comes in verse 17 and he says, These false teachers make much of you, but they're really using you. In other words, they compliment you, but to no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. He says, these people are acting like your friends, but they're excluding you to try to draw you in. They're saying you're not really saved in order to manipulate you. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, it's not wrong to be encouraged. It's not wrong to hear that you're made, for example, in the image of God for a good purpose. And then he changes and he begins to say, I wish I was with you. 
Not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. He says, I wish I was there to give you the encouragement, to, to really work through this together. It is together. Understand that coming together on Sunday morning to worship is but the tip of the iceberg. Community is developed in relationship with one another. And relationships are at the heart of the gospel. That's why our Sunday school, our equipped ministry is so vitally important. Because that's where you get to know one another. These classes are not just about gaining knowledge. They're about growing in community. Encouraging one another. Knowing that we are all recipients of God's grace. And need help that we might become like Christ. Because that's the goal. Francis Chan is a well-known author. He's a missionary now, but at one time he pastored in Southern California. He wrote about a missionary who came to his church and told the story of sharing the gospel with a remote tribe in New Guinea. And at the end of the story, the missionary said, I should really give the credit to Vaughn. My former youth pastor who loved me and inspired me to live for Christ and share the gospel with others. The next week, another speaker came. And he challenged the church to start sponsoring kids in poverty. The second speaker concluded by saying, I'm involved in this ministry because of my youth pastor. A guy named Vaughn. Those guys were from the same youth group. The next week, a third speaker named Dan came to talk about his ministry at a rescue mission in inner city Los Angeles. After Dan's talk, he casually mentioned, Dan, it was so weird. The last two weeks, both of our speakers mentioned how much impact their youth pastor, Vaughn, had on them. Dan's eyes got real wide, and he said, I know Vaughn. He's a pastor in San Diego now. And he takes people into the dumps in Tijuana where kids are picking through the garbage. In fact, I just went with Vaughn to Tijuana. He said we would walk in the city and these kids would run up to him and would show him such deep love and affection. He'd hug them and have gifts and food for them. He'd figure out how to get them something as simple as a shower. Francis, it was eerie. The whole time I was walking with Vaughn, I kept thinking, if Jesus was on earth, I think this is what it would feel like to walk with him. He just loved everyone he ran into. And he would tell them about God. People were drawn to his love and affection. And then Dan said this. The day I spent with Vaughn, was the closest thing I've ever experienced to walking with Jesus. Francis Chan said this made him think. Would anyone say that about me? Would anyone say that about you? Chan said as he thought about this, he prayed, Lord, that's what I want. I don't want to be the best speaker in the world. That doesn't matter. I don't want to be the most intelligent person on the planet. That's not what I want to be known for. I want to be known for someone saying, wow, 
he's a lot like Jesus. That's our goal. Focus on the grace of God. And you'll see yourself becoming more like Christ. Bow with me in prayer, if you will. Father, there are forces that just as in the time of Paul sought to pull the church away from the character of Christ. The devil is still at work today. So help us as a congregation to stay focused on the goal. To stay focused on knowing Jesus and becoming like him. Father, let your love and joy overflow in this congregation. That we show the world who Jesus is. Because Lord, non-believers, whether they know it or not, are hungry for that type of love and joy. And Father, that only happens when we as individuals hunger for Jesus. So Lord, help us to ask ourselves that very same question that Francis Chan did. Would anyone ever say that walking with me is like walking with Jesus? Work in our lives, Father, for the glory of your name we pray. Amen.